My name is Hein Johansen and this is The Wine World. We're here with uh, Ray Nadison from uh, Lethbridge Wine. Welcome, Ray. Hi, how are you going? You come all the way from Australia to Norway to visit us. Uh, how is Australia's uh, wine country? Well, it's the same as it's been for a little while, but there's some interesting things happening um, in the last few years, which I think we should talk about. What is kind of the story about how Lethbridge wine came to pass? Well, it's quite a long story, actually. It's hard to even imagine that it's been 25 years since uh, it started. Um, so it's a, it was a little uh, dream of my wife and I to uh, establish a, a winery. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's 25 years. How do we start? Gosh, it's a, that's such a long story. <laughs> but um, let me put it quickly and briefly because um, I'm sure we're going to talk about other things. But essentially, we're both uh, research scientists. I'm a neuroscientist by trade. And my wife was a medicinal chemist, and we met while we were doing our PhDs at, in Melbourne. Um, and then we ended up uh, working in science. I, I worked in the Department of Anesthesia, uh, teaching medicine, and uh, she was a, a, a research um, fellow, and uh, then ended up becoming a, a sort of a medicinal chemist. But then what we realized is that, you know, one of the things that uh, happens to people is that you you realize that you want to do something more with your life. That and, and I'm an outdoor person as well. And so winemaking was a natural mix between science, art, which I, you know, we both love, and, um, and outside. I think for Australia, then, then it has come quite a far way for the last maybe 20 years or so. It's gone from being very sort of bossy, big wines for the American market and to more... Uh, elegant wines, I think. I think that there's, this is an interesting misconception, I think. It's one of the things that people see, I guess, outside Australia and uh, is the, the big South Australian uh, wines, which you are absolutely right. They were made for a market, and both for the UK and for the US, because, you know, that sort of Parker-esque wines were in vogue. Um, and also, Australia's a hot country, so there's large areas of, of um, where that sort of wine is produced. But for a long time, I mean, back in the 60s, there's been elegant wines being made, but they're always made by small producers. And um, the problem is small producers generally didn't export. So we never really got to see these wines, or you guys never got to see these wines outside the country. But, you know, Pinot, Cool Climate, Shiraz, um, more elegant styles of Cabernet have been made in Victoria for many, many, many years. You were... Three friends that started out and... Uh, yeah, and, and, so oh. the story goes like this. Um, basically, um, my friend Adrian and uh, and I um, used to have a, a day off on a Wednesday um, and we would spend the Wednesday afternoon um, spending too much time drinking wine and solving the world's problems um, while Marie was still hard working and didn't have Wednesday off. But what we realised quite early was that we wanted to to, you know, we, we'd had done our PhDs, you know, we, you know, we were doctors, Aid was a, uh, a cardiac physician. You know, we thought at 27, you know, we could do whatever we wanted to do. And, you know, we tasted these wines and we were tasting more European wines. And we thought to ourselves, well, how come we don't see this many of this style, especially these sort of more ethereal style wines being made in Australia? And this is a long time ago. This is 25 years ago. Even though there were some examples, there weren't many, which is what you were. Uh, alluding to before. Um, so in that sort of 
youth and arrogance, we thought we could do it. And um, so we took it on pretty much as a research project. Um, and Marie and I, um, you know, spent a lot of time looking over geological maps, uh, studying soils, and also looking at the old world and seeing the aspects of the old world that make wines of finesse. Uh, and what we sort of distilled was that it had to be a cool climate, but which with plenty of around Melbourne. Um, but secondly, it's about soil. One of the things in Australia that people hadn't talked about a lot was soils. Um, they sort of thought that soil was just the medium by which you, you know, you could put grow vines in, but it didn't really affect anything. Uh, and that's what we thought we would do differently. So we started looking around <clears throat> for limestone soils, and there's an area around uh, Melbourne called Geelong, which has these limestone soils. Um, actually, an interesting um, side note is the n name of the city that uh, Geelong actually is uh, an old Aboriginal word, you know, 30, 40,000 years old, which actually means white cliff. But interesting that there are no white cliffs in Geelong today. Because 30,000 years ago, there was a big volcanic flow. So, you know, like, like last, last Tuesday, there was a big volcanic flow, which actually covered uh, all of this uh, limestone with, uh, with um, basalt. And it's taken the last 30,000 years to actually create some soil. So we have these really interesting basalt clays, quite shallow, over the top of limestone. And that's what we were very excited about. Um, so that's where our vineyards are. When you when you work with because you you all come from a, a scientific background, does that affect your winemaking as well and your way of thinking about uh, winemaking? For sure, I mean it definitely does, um, but it, not in the way that you'd imagine. Um, you know, you'd think that you know people with PhDs would actually you know in science would end up sort of thinking about um, making wine in a very scientific way. But I think one of the things that um, you must remember why did I why did my wife and I do a PhD you know because we did it because we love nature we love to understand the more you understand about nature the more beautiful um, you can you know you understand the world to be how complex it is and so one of the things that um, with that knowledge you can be much more you can take more risks because you know where the edges are if you are just making wine without um, with you know just say with tradition so i you know like my grandfather did this my great grandfather did this yes you might be lucky and you might make good wine but the issue is that you don't know how close to the cutting edge you are one of the thing about doing hard, you know so sort of cutting edge research is that you're always pushing that frontier until you're redefining that edge all the time so one of the things about winemaking is that yes it, you know scientific background does help because we know or we we have a better understanding of how the chemistry, how the biology of, of the winemaking is happening, and we can decide when it is appropriate to do X or Y. But we have always done things naturally. So, you know, biodynamic, organic farming for 25 years, that same approach in the winemaking. I should think there was kind of a controversy, and especially in biodynamic winemaking, because uh, there is an established scientist, uh, scientific fact that homeopathy Doesn't does not work. work. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I'm I'm all all over it. Like, there's no doubt that homeopathy doesn't work. You know, like 
there's no evidence for it at all. But you must remember that biodynamics isn't homeopathic. You know, just because we can't see the millions of fungi and the millions of bacteria in a, you know, in, in a brew doesn't mean that they aren't there. And we, you know, like you don't, it's not homeopathic. It's, we are inoculating the vineyards. So why do I do it? And uh, because I am trying to increase the amount of life in the soil. And that's by adding, well, a lot of compost is what the first thing that we do, so that it, it, that's a, a gross thing. But then what we do on top of that is inoculate the compost with bacteria and fungus. It's not, it's not as complicated as it seems. It's not like um, we're taking a homeopathic, you know, three cells. We're actually putting on millions of cells, and those cells multiply if you give it the right environment. So it's like the seed. So that's how I think about it. It's not like homeopathic in that way. Would you talk a little bit more about uh, the style of wine you make? Well, I guess the style of wine is very inherently based on what I like to drink, which are earthy and well, they're quite high acid wines, but they're perhaps not atypical. Oh, they're, they're atypical for many uh, wines that you will see from Australia in, in, you know, from the big companies anyway. We're not about sweet. You won't see fruit forward wines. You see savory wines. I guess my fundamental belief is that wine is for food. You know, I'm not a drink wine by the fireside type of guy. You know, that's it. I'd, I'd rather have a glass of whiskey. You know, that's that's me. For me, I don't want uh, a big glass of wine. You know, a big powerful fruit to have with my meal. I need acidity. I need tannin. I need tension. Those things are more likely to be created uh, when you have a, a sort of more savory palate. How do you see yourself in a in, in sort of a bigger Australian environment, or, or perhaps what do you think is the future of Australian wine? Well, I think that it's it's really interesting. We're we're at crossroads now, and I think that the um, there is a movement away from these bigger styles of wines because actually the market for them is actually shrinking. So. We have seen a lot of younger producers get into the market, which I think is very exciting. I think there's also a move to quality because we cannot compete on price anymore. Because there was a time, I guess, that the industrial farming um, allowed us to, you know, compete on a, you know, on a liter char, uh, liter basis with uh, low cost countries. But now we cannot do that. So I think there is a flight to quality. Now, for a small producer, it's also the world has become a much smaller place and we are able to export. So we're in, you know, 12, 15 markets around the world. Uh, that would have been unheard of, say, 20 years ago. I mean, we make very little wine. We make 120,000 bottles, you know, and within that, uh, we export uh, between 30 and 40 percent now, uh, which is quite a significant amount of our production. But it even gets stranger because we make 61 different cuvées. Okay, now 61 different cuvées, that's... Sound like a German. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Jawohl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the reason is because I'm a, you know, maybe this isn't a good joke, but, you know, I'm a terrorist. Like, you know, like, not a terrorist, but a terrorist. You know, like, I believe in small parcels. When I see something exciting happen in a small parcel, then I'm going to make a wine and it can come down to 600 bottles so that's okay it's actually more like a little burgundy producer really so we have for instance nine different cuvées of pinot uh, we have five different cuvées of chardonnay we have four different cuvées of shiraz 
uh, and they're all distinct. And why would I blend them? And and you also have uh, three different brands that you use to to brand. Yeah. Them so you've got Lethbridge, which is you know what we started with, which is you know uh, you know as I said, that the inception of that was twenty five years ago now. Um, that is very classic. So I always like this music analogy, and and I've been you know I've been using it a bit this this week. But Lethbridge is always about a single variety often about a single site or sites that are very similar and it's about um, a single winemaker that's oh, me or my, my wife and I so really what you are if you use the analogy of music which is what I really like to think about it's like watching um, the the variety is like the instrument so in this case you know let's talk about Chardonnay and let's equate that to uh, a violin so Chardonnay is the instrument violin is the instrument the place is the piece of music so the if you listen to or you taste the wine and you will listen to the piece of music you will be able to tell yes that's a violin and it's a violin concerto playing a mozart concerto um and that's chardonnay distinctly and if you knew the music well you would know that it's from geelong because you know it's cool climate it's on limestone etc cetera, etc cetera. the third and the human part of it which i think is super important is the person that's playing. So if you're listening to that piece of music, it's a violin concerto by Mozart, and the soloist is, you know, Michael, Michael Kennedy or Itzhak Perlman. They're different. You know, when I listen to recordings or I see them live, well, Michael Kennedy, but, you know, you see them live and you go, they play differently. They have a different sensibility. That is interesting. So if you go back to the grape analogy or the wine analogy, you've got, you know, the, the, the Chardonnay, from Geelong, but you should, when you taste one of my wines in the Lethbridge range, you should be able to tell that it's me. After a while, of course, you know, it's not like, you know, the first time you listen to it, you go, yeah, I got his style. But the thing, what's interesting when you do 61 different cuvées is that you should see the style through the whole process. I, I've been very lucky, actually, and I've been on, it's kinds of like, talking about music, I've been like on tour for the last 11 days, and it's... You feel it's, like a rock star. No, I do not feel like a rock star because uh, I feel exhausted, actually, to be truthful. But, but it is it is like a performance, you know, like because I am showing people what I do, and it is actually the thing the thing that brings it all to the end. Because it, unlike a rock star, I'm not performing every night the same piece or whatever. I'm actually showing them the product that I made previously. But the end part is actually being able to show them the wine and seeing the feedback that they give me. That feeds my feeds me um, i suppose like a musician it feeds you so that you can actually go back and do it again you know you can go back to the studio and write some more music you know and record more stuff i suppose that is an analogy but i hate that analogy of rock star because a winemaker is a farmer okay so i'm not gonna you know i don't live the rock star lifestyle i just feel like i go out a lot and show my product you know so it's basically a farmer but going back to uh what you were saying about the the other branches um so that's lethbridge after Lethbridge, we, about 11 years ago, uh, started a, a thing called Between Five Bells. So Between Five Bells came out of a need for me to to be free. Because um, going back to my music analogy, and if you think about uh, playing the same instrument, the same piece of music by Mozart, and, you know, people start to expect you to play it in the same way all the time, you know. So you can get a little stale. I, and I'm not 
a recipe winemaker. I don't have recipes. I don't write anything down. I want to feel the moment. The problem is, you know, once in a while you make a good wine and yet there is that real risk to want to reproduce it exactly. Now, you, that is an illusion. It's an illusion anyway because the vintage is different, etc., etc. So you have to be in the moment. So to teach myself to be in the moment between five bells was something I... I, you know, came up with some friends and it was an, it's where I have my, um, sort of, it's like free jazz. So instead, or jamming, you know, it's like I know how to play instruments. You know, I make 17 different varieties. I know how to make them. I've been doing it for a while. When I'm coming back to Between Five Bells, I just kind of make it up as I go along. It's in the moment and it's only created in that sort of six to eight week window that I'm actually making wine. It's not, it's not a blend in, as such. It's not like I sit at the bench after fermentation and go, oh, well, that barrel would be nice with that barrel of finished wine. It's not like that. It's actually a continuous blend. So we might get some fruit come in and it'll start fermenting. And then I'll get some more fruit come in and that'll be fermenting and there'll be a different, different spaces. And then I will look at them and I'll go, actually, if I put those two together now, there's going to be a change, the combination is actually going to be interesting. Here's where the science comes in. I have to know that if I put this high sugar ferment into that low sugar ferment, it's still going to ferment. And that actually will produce a different um, end result to when you blend it at the end finished. I could go into that, but it's <laughs> pretty complicated. But the main thing about Between Five Bells is about this idea of freedom. It's never the same either. And there was a third company as well oh yeah well there's Ilmodo, which is that's my i suppose that you know environmental consciousness has been something that's been strong for me from the beginning um so that's why we've always farmed organically and then the other thing is like my winery is built out of straw uh, i designed it and built it myself it's so that we don't have to use many inputs so we don't have cooling and we don't have heating in the winery because the, the great insulation quality of the straw it's over a meter thick So the walls are massive, like massively um, insulation. Uh, like a normal house in Australia, and I, I don't know about in Norway, but normal house in Australia has an R factor. It's an insulation factor of two. My walls have an insulation factor of 30. So it's uh, significant. But also it has locked up carbon because that straw used to be burnt. So I feel kind of good like that. That was part of the process. But the third thing I think that's really important and why, why Ilmodo came out is that there is a real need in Australia to conserve water. And one of the th problems that we have is that there are a lot of uh, vineyards that are planted in areas uh, to grape varieties which are very thirsty. Because in Australia we were invaded by the English who brought their English wine-drinking habits to Australia. So what did they drink? They drank predominantly Bordeaux, Burgundy, and maybe a little bit of Northern Rhone. But of course, the Northern Rhone varieties, Shiraz, is really only grown sort of mostly from Hermitage up. There's not so much grown Hermitage down. So um, what I think is interesting is that they planted that pretty much everywhere, um, and they planted Chardonnay pretty much everywhere. And Chardonnay can grow everywhere, but does it make great wine? Mm. Well, let's worry about that later. But it is super thirsty. If we had been invaded by Italians, on the other hand, God forbid, our political system would be even messier than it is now. However, 
we would have planted southern Italian varieties in a lot of these hot places. Things like Alianico, things like Greco, things like Fiano. And so what I've done is I've partnered with some growers up in the hotter parts of Australia. So where I am, it's ultra cool. But, you know, seven hours away, it's actually pretty hot. And it's actually big irrigated farms. But what they have been doing is previously they've been growing Shiraz and Chardonnay for bulk wine. But now we are getting them to grow um, really beautiful southern Italian varieties, which are much, much res- more resistant to, um, to drought, number one. But number two, we don't need to add anything. You don't need to add acid or anything because they are actually high acid varieties in hot climates. So that's part of my sort of new thing, which is called Il Modo. And do you, do you see a lot of uh, climate change now the last 10 years or so? Yeah. Well, maybe not 10 years, but I think in 25 years I have seen it. Like we used to never really pick a single grape until the, like my wife's birthday, which is about the 11th of April. So if you flip that over into the northern hemisphere, that would be sort of, you know, mid-October. Uh, that would be where we sort of started. Uh, but now that's been pushed back um, to, in general, it's now sometime in late March, so probably two weeks. But it's not so much that there is uh, a year-to-year, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. What it, we see is that there's more hot years and there's less cool years. So that's really what you're seeing, a drift, I think, to the average being higher. But how can we tell about averages when we've only been farming for 25 years? Um, it's hard. But what I know is that it is becoming less predictable, rainfall especially. I, I just uh, visited Champagne last week, and they said that the average number of growing days for maturation of grapes is shortening. Yeah. Is shortening. Um, yeah. Do you see the same thing? That's or? the same thing. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, actually, is basically instead of you know, picking in from the 11th of April onwards into May, which is pretty normal for us. Now we're picking from the, the so that means the bud burst is pretty much the same, but when you actually pick, so the, the length of time between bud burst and harvest is actually shortening. Do you think that it, you think it has uh, an impact on the taste of the wine? Yep, I do. Um, what I think you find is in those vintages where you have a longer ripening period, you're more likely to have better tannin development in red and um, you have better flavor development also but this is also true in white Um, one of the things that we're trying to do is try to get more again you know talking about appropriate varieties so for instance what we've done at Lethbridge I mean unheard of we would never have thought about planting Gamay but we're planting a new vineyard of Gamay now because we think that in some years Gamay might be actually probably better suited than Pinot Noir because the ripening periods are actually going to be um, better, longer for Gamay than they are for Pinot, because Gamay comes from further south in Burgundy. Yeah, and, and most Burgundians hate it as well. So it's, well, that's, yeah. inter- that's interesting you say that. I think that you might find, and I've got a couple of friends in, in, Ga- uh, in Beaujolais, that uh, many Burgundians are actually buying parcels of land in, in Beaujolais now and making Beaujolais. So it's not as um, bad as it once was. I mean, like, you know, you know what like Burgundians like, you know, guy in Volnay doesn't drink pomade. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's madness. So, you know, like there is, it is that sort of parochialness, which, um, which I think they'll get over. I think, it, I think Gamay is really interesting and, uh, especially, uh, especially tasting older Gamays and. They can and, look like great uh, Pinot. I mean, they yeah. can taste really quite, it, it, it is about technique. I mean, like to some extent Gamay, 
I think is a beautiful grape. It depends how you want to make it. If you want to make it like, you know, 100% carbonate maceration and you want to make a Beaujolais Nouveau, well, obviously it's going to look pretty ordinary. But there are other techniques. Cru Beaujolais can be delicious. And I think there's another movement which we should talk about briefly, I think, is that movement away from generally, you know, aging wines um, and drinking wines sort of that are lighter, fresher, more approachable. And I think that, you know, Gamay fits that mould really well and much less expensive. You know, I think that we need to think about wine as uh, the ability to democratise wine a little bit. You know, we can't afford Grand Cru Burgundy anymore, you know, like, Many young people don't get to drink the benchmark wines anymore. Thank you very much for coming, Ray Nadison of Lethbridge Wine. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time.